The following sermon is by Josh Tancordo, the teaching pastor at Redeeming Grace Church in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Redeeming Grace is a gospel-centered church that values rich biblical teaching and authentic Christian community. Learn more by visiting our website at redeeminggracepittsburgh.com. We have been working our way passage by passage through the book of Genesis, and today the next passage we come to is Genesis 36, verses 1 through 43, which you can find in your pew Bible on page 30. I'll be reading a selection of verses from that passage. It says, beginning in verse 1, These are the generations of Esau, that is Edom. Esau took his wives from the Canaanites, Ada, the daughter of Alon, the Hittite, Olehbama, the daughter of Anna, the daughter of Zibion the Hivite, and Basemuth, Ishmael's daughter, the sister of Nebioth. And Ada bore to Esau Eliphaz. Basemuth bore Reul. And Olibama bore Jeush, Jalam, and Korah. These are the sons of Esau who were born to him in the land of Canaan. And then Esau took his wives, his sons, his daughters, and all the members of his household, his livestock, and all his beasts, and all his property that he had acquired in the land of Canaan. He went into a land away from his brother Jacob, for their possessions were too great for them to dwell together. The land of their sojournings could not support them because of their livestock. So Esau settled in the hill country of Seir. Esau is Edom. These are the generations of Esau, the father of the Edomites in the hill country of Seir. These are the names of Esau's sons, Eliphaz, the son of Ada, the wife of Esau, Reuel, the son of Basemuth, the wife of Esau. The sons of Eliphaz were Teman, Omar, Zepho, Gatam, and Canaz. Timnah was a concubine of Eliphaz, Esau's son. She bore Amalek to Eliphaz. These are the sons of Ada, Esau's wife. These are the sons of Reuel, Nahath, Zerah, Shammah, and Mizah. These are the sons of Basemuth, Esau's wife. These are the sons of Olabama, the daughter of Anna, the daughter of Zibion, Esau's wife. She bore to Esau, Jeush, Jalam, and Korah. These are the chiefs of the sons of Esau. The sons of Eliphaz, the firstborn of Esau, the chiefs, Teman, Omar, Zepho, Kanaz, Korah, Gatam, and Amalek. These are the chiefs of Eliphaz in the land of Edom. These are the sons of Ada. These are the sons of Reuel, Esau's son, the chiefs Nahath, Zerah, Shammah, and Mizah. These are the chiefs of Reuel in the land of Edom. These are the sons of Basemuth, Esau's wife. These are the sons of Olabama, Esau's wife, the chiefs Jeush, Jalam, and Korah. These are the chiefs born of Olabama, the daughter of Anna, Esau's wife. These are the sons of Esau, that is, Edom. And these are their chiefs. May God bless the reading of his word. Thank you, Jeremy. I feel like I need to tell you not only thanks, but congratulations uh, for reading that. So appreciate that. Let's pray together. Uh, Father, we we do read in Psalm 19 that your law is perfect, reviving the soul. It says your testimony is sure, 
making wise the simple. Your precepts are right, giving joy to the heart. And your commandments are pure, enlightening the eyes. So please, as we dig into your word this morning, even this text here in Genesis 36, Lord, we pray that you would revive our souls, give wisdom to our minds, impart joy to our hearts, and enlighten our eyes. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. D.L. Moody once said that our greatest fear in life shouldn't be not of failure, but of succeeding at something that doesn't really matter. So often, of course, people are afraid of failing at what they set out to do. Yet imagine what it would be like to pour all of your energy into something throughout your life and perhaps be viewed as very successful in that endeavor only to discover as you're looking back over your life that none of it really mattered. Or picture this. Imagine spending your entire life climbing an insanely high mountain and persevering through all the various difficulties and struggles involved in getting up that mountain and straining with all your energy to make it to the top only to discover once you finally reached the peak that you were climbing the wrong mountain that whole time. And you're now at the end of your life and can't really do anything about it. That, as D.L. Moody says, should be our greatest fear. Not of failure, but of succeeding at something that doesn't really matter. So how can we make sure that's not us? How can we make sure we don't end up succeeding at something that doesn't have any ultimate or eternal value? Well, that's what we'll be discussing this morning in our examination of Genesis 36. Uh, This chapter, of course, tells us about a man named Esau and some of the decisions he made and the legacy he left in the form of his descendants. And uh, unfortunately, as we'll see, Esau seems to have been much more interested in earthly greatness and earthly prosperity than he was in seeking any kind of blessedness in God. Now, in order to understand this chapter, it's necessary for us to have a little background information. Way back in Genesis 12, God had promised Abraham three things. That he'd become a great nation, that he'd possess the land of Canaan, and that he would be God's chosen instrument of blessing to the entire world. Those promises were then passed down to Abraham's son, Isaac. After all, Isaac, or Isaac was, was Abraham's son legitimately through Sarah. And then after that, one might assume that those promises would subsequently be passed down to Esau, since Esau was Isaac's firstborn son, which was a huge deal in that culture. So typically, the expectation would be that he would be the natural heir to those promises. However, Esau voluntarily gives up 
his privileged position in Genesis 25, 29 through 34. It says that once when Jacob, that would be Esau's younger brother, was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew for I'm exhausted. Therefore, his name is called Edom. Jacob said, sell me your birthright now. Esau said, I'm about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? Jacob said, swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. Now in ancient times, a birthright was a set of extremely valuable privileges that was typically given to the firstborn son. These privileges included exercising unique authority in the family and also receiving a double portion of the family inheritance. So for Jacob to gain the birthright, as he does in these verses, is a really big deal. And notice how verse 34 lays the blame for this on Esau. It tells us that Esau despised his birthright. Of course, Jacob was pretty devious in the way he took advantage of his brother, but ultimately the blame is assigned to Esau. Esau had remarkably little regard for his birthright and is willing to sell it for a bowl of stew. He obviously doesn't even come close to grasping the significance of what God had promised to fulfill through the line of descendants coming from Abraham. Esau would have been the natural heir to those promises, but he instead foolishly pawns them off to Jacob. And that's the first indication that Esau's more committed to earthly ambitions and earthly priorities than he is to God's blessings. Then, as we come to our main passage of Genesis 36, we see some additional examples of the path Esau chose for himself. In verses 1 through 3, we see that Esau married Canaanite women. It says that these are the generations of Esau, that is Edom. Esau took his wives from the Canaanites. Ada, the daughter of Elon the Hittite. Aholabama, the daughter of Ana, the daughter of Zibion the Hivite. And Basemath, Ishmael's daughter, the sister of Nebaioth. Now, you have to understand here that the Canaanites were thoroughly pagan. They had no knowledge of God or devotion to God and were therefore not suitable spouses at all. Because who you marry, it makes a tremendous impact on the trajectory of the rest of your life. By the way, that's a good principle for those of you who are single and looking for a spouse. Whoever you end up marrying will have a greater spiritual impact on you moving forward than just about any other single factor of your life. You'll find yourself naturally forming your perspectives on things based on their perspectives on things. You'll find it natural for their attitudes and habits to become your attitudes and habits. That's why some of the best advice I've ever heard about finding a 
spouse is to run as fast as you can toward Jesus and then look beside you to see who's running next to you. Don't settle for someone who's not truly devoted to the Lord. And yet that's exactly the mistake Esau makes. He does exactly what his grandfather Abraham had expressly forbidden back in chapter 24 and takes wives from the Canaanites. Not just one, which would have been God's plan, one man and one woman. He takes multiple wives, polygamy. And you know, that says a lot about where Esau's heart was in relation to God and to the things of God. And then lastly, Esau essentially seals his fate when he moves out of the land of Canaan. Look at verses 6 through 8. Then Esau took his wives, his sons, his daughters, and all the members of his household, his livestock, all his beasts, and all his property that he had acquired in the land of Canaan. He went into a land away from his brother Jacob, for their possessions were too great for them to dwell together. The land of their sojournings could not support them because of their livestock. So Esau settled in the hill country of Seir. Esau is Edom. Now, you'll recall from a few moments ago that the land of Canaan was the land that God had promised to Abraham. So by leaving Canaan, Esau was cutting himself off from any portion of blessing he might have otherwise received from God. His departure made it quite clear that he was not and would not be considered a part of God's chosen people. Of course, we see in verse 7 that Esau and Jacob had too many possessions for them to dwell in close proximity to each other. However, Esau could have dealt with that problem simply by moving to another place within the land of Canaan. Like, it was a vast land. I mean, it it one day would support the, the entire nation of Israel. So there was plenty of room in Canaan overall. Yet Esau instead left Canaan completely and went to the land of Seir. Because at the end of the day, it would seem Esau just didn't care about God or perhaps even wanted to live his life apart from God. The rest of chapter 36 then traces out Israel or Esau's descendants, including the numerous tribal chiefs that would come from him in verses 15 through 19, and even the line of kings that would come from him in verses 31 through 39. It's uh, mostly a list of names, most of which were already read this morning, so I'm not going to read uh, the, the whole thing again. But just know that the point of all these names and of this genealogy as a whole is to demonstrate how great Esau would become, at least when it comes to earthly greatness. Yet, of course, this chapter also reminds us that, sadly enough, Esau's life and legacy didn't really have a whole lot to do with God. So to bring all this together into a single main idea, we see that although Esau achieved significant earthly greatness, he was ultimately excluded from God's covenant blessings. By the way, the word covenant simply refers to the sacred agreement God had made with Abraham to bless him in the various ways we discussed. So although Esau achieved significant earthly greatness, he was ultimately excluded from God's covenant blessings. 
And we see this trajectory confirmed in the subsequent generations of Esau's descendants. Esau's descendants would grow in number and eventually take control of the land of Seir, where Esau resettled, and name it Edom. They would then become known as the Edomites. And the Edomites would be bitter enemies of Israel. If you fast forward about 500 years to the time when Moses was leading the Israelites out of Egypt, Numbers chapter 20 records Moses reaching out to the Edomites in a very peaceful and diplomatic manner and requesting permission to just briefly pass through a portion of their land in order to get to where they were going, the promised land. However, for no good reason at all, the Edomites refused his request and actually sent out their army to make sure the Israelites didn't pass through their territory. Then, several hundred years after that, King Saul, the first Israelite king, had to fight against the Edomites, who are specifically listed in 1 Samuel 14, 47 as Israel's enemies. Yet perhaps the most shocking instance of Edom's hostility toward Israel is recorded in the, the prophetic book of Obadiah one of the minor prophets. In Obadiah, which is only a single chapter, God says to the people of Edom in verses 13 and 14, do not enter the gate of my people in the day of their calamity. Do not gloat um, over his, that would be Israel's disaster in the day of his, Israel's calamity. Do not loot his wealth in the day of his calamity. Do not stand at the crossroads to cut off his fugitives do not hand over his survivors in the day of distress. So he tells them not to do it, but that's what they had done, right? So understand what they had done. When the Israelites were in the process of fleeing for their lives from the army of Babylon, the Edomites actually stood at the crossroads in order to cut off their escape and apprehend them and turn them over to the Babylonians to be slaves. Therefore, God says to Edom in verse 15, as you have done, it shall be done to you. Your deeds shall return on your own head. He then says in verse 18, the house of Jacob, that's Israel, should be a fire or shall be a fire and the house of Joseph a flame and the house of Esau stubble. They shall burn them and consume them and there shall be no survivor for the house of Esau, for the Lord has spoken. And that prophecy of Esau's destruction was indeed fulfilled. Uh, in the year 68 AD, the Edomites were destroyed by the Roman army. The greatness of Esau lasted for a long time, but it eventually came to a tragic end. And that's the nature of all earthly greatness. It's all just temporary. Kind of like building a sandcastle at the beach. You know, you could build the most elaborate sandcastle that's ever been crafted. But what's eventually going to happen to that sandcastle? Something, right? Something's going to happen to that sandcastle. Either the tide will come in and, and wash it away, 
Or some kids will, you know, come poking around and decide it's been there long enough and take great pleasure in destroying it. Or if by some miracle the same castle survives, those kinds of things. Uh, well, eventually the natural elements like the wind and rain and, and sun will gradually take a toll on that sandcastle and destroy it. Sandcastles are temporary. And so is all earthly greatness. As we see here with Esau and the nation of Edom that came from him. And our main passage of Genesis 36 makes it clear that that was Esau's trajectory. He chose earthly greatness and earthly prosperity over God's covenant blessings and thereby excluded himself from those blessings. And all of this should lead us to ask some very important questions about our own lives. What's the focus of your life? What's the central thing you're seeking? Is it some form of earthly greatness? That would include material wealth, earthly possessions, a successful career, professional prestige, educational achievements, a large following on social media, physical beauty or attractiveness, and various kinds of attempts to live and achieve things vicariously through your children. Now, of course, there is a God-pleasing way to pursue a lot of these things. Uh, for example, you can seek to excel in your career in a manner that glorifies God. Like, that's entirely possible. Uh, that would involve approaching your career as a way of making a positive impact on other people and contributing to the common good of society. So basically, uh, viewing it as a means of loving your neighbor. That's a very good and godly mentality. But the problem is that what people are often seeking through the kinds of things I just listed, it doesn't have anything to do with loving other people or, for that matter, loving God. Instead, it's all about self-advancement and achieving earthly greatness. And that's the mentality that Genesis 36 addresses. The rise and fall of Esau reminds us that material wealth is temporary, that possessions wear out, that careers inevitably end, that professional prestige will soon be forgotten, that educational achievements will one day be irrelevant, that a large following on social media will eventually disband, and that physical attractiveness, physical beauty, fades away. In other words, all the things that so many people spend so much of their lives and their time pursuing are astonishingly temporary. They're here today and gone tomorrow. I mean, think about it like this. Regardless of what you manage to achieve and, and accomplish in any of these areas, Who's even going to remember you 20 years after you die? Maybe a few people, but not many. Now, how about 30 years 
or 40 years or 50 years. Guys, I can just about guarantee nobody is going to be thinking about you 50 years after you die. You'll be utterly forgotten, and anything you accomplished of an earthly nature would be ancient history. So why would you devote your life to things that don't last? Like, why would you spend all of your energy building a sandcastle that'll soon be destroyed? Instead, God invites us to set our gaze on what's eternal, on an inheritance that's imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. That's the way Peter phrases it in 1 Peter 1, 3 and 4. Listen to what he writes here. Speaking to Christians, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. That's what our hearts should be set on. A heavenly inheritance that'll never perish and never fade. And notice how verse 3 says this inheritance is obtained here. It's obtained, first of all, by God's mercy. We have this inheritance according to his great mercy. When we deserved eternal punishment because of our sinful rebellion, God was merciful toward us. He mercifully withheld the punishment we deserved and gave us something we couldn't even begin to deserve. As Peter says, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So, born again. That means we've experienced an inward transformation that's so radical, it's as if we've been born a second time. Like, we're new people. Instead of being condemned, we're forgiven. Instead of being alienated from God, we're adopted as his children. Instead of loving sin, we love God and the things of God and the ways of God. And as Peter specifically says, we now have a living hope, right? We're born again to a living hope. And all of this has come about, Peter says, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Jesus' resurrection, of course, implies his crucifixion. The Bible teaches that Jesus allowed himself to be crucified on a cross in order to atone for our sins. Jesus suffered the wrath our sins deserved on the cross so that we wouldn't have to. And then three days later, he triumphantly resurrected from the dead and thereby paved the way for us to share in his victory and experience eternal life in heaven. And so the first question, and uh, really the question above all questions that we should be asking ourselves is, 
Have we obtained that? Have you ever been born again to that living hope? Are you confident you'll receive that inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading? If not, then I have some really good news for you. You can have that hope and that confidence even today if you'll put your trust in Jesus to rescue you. That involves renouncing all of your misguided efforts to earn God's favor through your your own worth or your own achievements and instead looking to Jesus alone to rescue you. If you want to live for what's eternal instead of what's temporary, that's step number one. After all, if you don't have hope for eternity, I just got to ask, what do you really have? If you don't have hope for eternity, what do you really have? I appreciate the way Jesus himself raises the question in Matthew 16, 26. He asks, for what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? Dear friends, the soul is infinitely precious. The question of where you'll spend eternity is supremely important. So what good will it be if you gain the whole world but forfeit your soul? So again, step number one is to make sure your eternal future is secure by putting your trust in Jesus. And yet that's not the end of living for eternity. It's only the beginning. After putting your trust in Jesus, we're then called to live the rest of our lives with eternity in view. And thinking back to Genesis, that's precisely what Esau didn't do. Throughout his life, Esau never seemed to be able to see beyond what was right in front of him. He saw a bowl of stew, so he sold his birthright to get it. He saw some attractive Canaanite women, so he went off and married them. He saw a land that looked like a better place to live than the land God had promised to Abraham. So he moved there. He never showed much concern at all for the things of God or what was eternally significant. By contrast, Jesus tells us to live in a way that's the exact opposite of that. In Matthew 6, 19 through 21, he says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So Jesus says, instead of laying up temporary treasures on earth, lay up eternal treasures in heaven. And here's what that looks like. Practically speaking, to start with what's probably the most obvious thing, laying out treasures in heaven involves using earthly wealth for heavenly purposes. 
contributing of our finances generously for the advance of the gospel. It also involves using earthly possessions for heavenly purposes. Uh, Some of the clearest examples that come to my mind of this in our church would be maybe those who open up their homes to host a community group, or those who use their homes a lot for hospitality toward others, or those who use their vehicles to bring people to church on Sunday who need a ride. And yet these are by no means the only ways we lay up treasures in heaven. All things considered, I believe perhaps the greatest way we lay up treasures in heaven is by investing our lives into the lives of those around us and seeking to make as great of a spiritual impact on them as we possibly can. For those who are parents, that starts with your children. As parents, you, not a youth leader or something you try to outsource it to, but you are the primary disciple makers, called by God to be the primary disciple makers of your children. So that involves things like usually family dinners and family devotions. It also involves being very deliberate about having conversations with your kids about the things of God and modeling in your own life what you desire for their lives. And of course, investing your life in the lives of others involves reaching out to those outside of your immediate family as well, especially those who are far from God. It involves praying for them on a daily basis, building meaningful friendships with them, and seeking opportunities in the course of conversations to talk about things that are spiritually significant. And I'd say also one thing we emphasize at our church, even having what we call evangelistic Bible studies, where you get together with them and you read the Bible, especially the Gospels. Now, obviously, doing those kinds of things requires a significant investment of time and energy. Because many times, I'll just say, it does take some time for most people to become receptive and responsive. So you've got to be in it for the long haul. But isn't that why God has us here? Have you ever asked yourself the question, why doesn't God, whenever someone becomes a Christian, why doesn't God just immediately beam them up to heaven? (laughs) Why does he leave us? here on earth? Well, could it be? Because perhaps there's something he wants us to do that can only be done on earth. And let me suggest that something is sharing the gospel with people and leading them to personal faith in a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Like that's why we're here. And that's the greatest way, I believe, in which we lay up treasures in heaven. So if I had to sum up the way I believe we should respond to everything we've discussed this morning, and specifically to Genesis 36, I'd say it would be to live for what's eternal. Live 
for what's eternal. Stop making your life all about things that don't really matter. And instead, start ordering your life in light of eternity. Because the fact is, guys, that our lives on this earth are very short. And eternity is very long. I heard an illustration one time that involved a rope. Um, We're not going to tie anyone up, don't worry. Um, It was just a very helpful illustration for me. Uh, This rope here represents eternity. And uh, as you can see, it's, it's pretty long, long enough. And this part of the rope right here between my two hands represents the time that we spend on this earth. So we're born, we grow up, we live as adults, and then we die. All within this part of the rope right here. And it's such a tiny part of the rope, isn't it? But for some reason, so many people live as if this part is all there is. So like, we ignore the, the rest of the rope. That goes on and on, and that represents the vast majority of our existence, and we instead spend all of our time just thinking about this little part right here. It's pretty crazy (laughs) when you think about it, and yet that's the way people often think. In fact, that's the way we often think, more often than we would probably care to admit. We're so fixated. On this present life. But God wants us to live in light of eternity. And when you have that eternal mindset, it leads you not only to engage in the mission Jesus has given us of sharing the gospel, but to sacrifice for the sake of that mission. Because Jesus tells us that whenever we sacrifice for his name's sake, we'll receive back exponentially more than we ever gave up in the present. Jesus actually says we'll receive back a hundredfold. He states in Matthew 19, 29, and everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father and mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. So you'll get back a hundred times as much as you ever gave up. For those of you who like numbers, that's a 10,000% return on your investment. I think David Livingstone expresses quite well uh, the perspective that we should have. Uh, David Livingstone was a missionary to Africa in the 1800s, and he was uh, one of the first Europeans Uh, ever to navigate through the African interior. So that means David Livingstone set foot um, in places where no European in modern history has ever before set foot. And to say the least, it was quite dangerous. I mean, this guy, if you read his story, he was attacked over 30 times by lions and other wild animals. His life was constantly threatened by illnesses like malaria and dysentery. 
At one point, he actually completely lost contact with the outside world for six years and was presumed to be dead. But the reason he did what he did and went where he went was because he understood that Jesus has called us to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. And he believed in advancing the gospel so much that he was even willing to die in the course of doing so. And many of us would look at David Livingstone's life and admire him for the sacrifices he made. But listen to what he says about that. Listen to what he says about the idea of him making a sacrifice. He says, For my own part, I've never ceased to rejoice that God has appointed me to such an office. People talk of the sacrifice I have made in spending so much of my life in Africa. Is it a sacrifice which brings its own blessed reward in healthful activity, the consciousness of doing good, peace of mind, and a bright hope of a glorious destiny there hereafter? Away with the word in such a view and with such a thought. It is emphatically no sacrifice. Say rather, it is a privilege. Anxiety, sickness, suffering, or danger now and then with a foregoing of the common conveniences and charities of this life may make us pause and cause the heart to waver and the soul to sink But let this only be for a moment. All these are nothing when compared with the glory which shall be revealed in and for us. I never made a sacrifice. In other words, Livingstone says, when you consider the immeasurable riches laid up in heaven for those who serve Jesus well, Nothing we do here on earth, no matter how dangerous or costly, could ever be considered a sacrifice. And eventually, Livingstone did end up dying in a remote African village from a combination of uh, malaria and internal bleeding caused by his dysentery. But in line with what he said, don't think even for a moment that even his death was a sacrifice. I have no doubt that Livingstone received back a hundredfold in heaven. And so will you if you're faithful to follow Jesus by going wherever he calls you to go and doing whatever he calls you to do. So instead of pursuing earthly greatness and earthly possessions and earthly prosperity, like we read about Esau doing here in Genesis 36, let me challenge you to instead give yourself entirely to God. Let your life be marked by an all-consuming passion for the Lord and His glory and his purposes.